Off the Ball Daily. A home for your favourite podcasts from Off the Ball. You see yourself as the clutch. <laughs> so Grumpy, a man apart. Yeah, it's 11 in a row for you, much like it's 7 in a row for Cluxton. Subscribe to the Off the Ball Daily podcast feed right now. OTB AM. The Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball. The South African rugby writer, Craig, how are things? Morning, guys. Nice to see you, Shane. Thanks for hopping on. What, what, what's your take on numbers, on, or sorry, names on rugby jerseys? I'm with Cameron on this one. <laughs> I don't like it. Uh, the Springboks, uh, the Bulls have done it in the past in Super Rugby. Um, but they even went further. They, they didn't put surnames. They put the first name. So it was just like Johan, Buckies, Victor. <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, I don't like it. I, I mean, rugby, the numbers are very position-specific. Mm. Um and so even in the, the team, like the Springboks have changed 13, 13 players between last week and this. Um, but you know that your outside centre is 13 and your open side flank in South Africa is going to be number six. And that's just how it is. So whoever wears that jersey, it's very um, clear what his position and his role is. Yeah, no, that's fair. I'm coming around. I'm coming around to the idea, uh, Craig. But uh, I guess we wanted to get you on to talk about the South African angle of things. Of course, we'll be in the same pool in the in the World Cup. 23rd of September is a date we're all looking forward to. A um, little bit of trepidation, I guess. I guess it's, it's the same on both sides. But um, from a Springbok point of view, so you've got the, uh, match against Argentina this began the first of three Rugby World Cup warm-up games for the Springboks. Uh, Jacques Nienaber, of course, will announce his final 33-man squad for the World Cup uh, next Tuesday. August 8th before these games against Wales and New Zealand what's the, the level of confidence like in, in South Africa at the moment Craig? I think it took a bit of a dent last week actually well the last two matches because uh, they opened the rugby championship with a 43-12 win over Australia which could have been 60 if they were a little bit more clinical uh, Australia very poor that day the Springboks did play well and there was a real buzz about the Springboks and a lot of confidence and then they had sent, they had split the squad, they had sent about uh, 13 players on to New Zealand because of the short turnaround between matches to prepare for the New Zealand test. And uh, within 20 minutes of that game, uh, reality set in. The All Blacks played brilliantly and uh, the Springboks were on the back foot, I think 17-0 down in 20 minutes and it was a slog from there. But I suppose when you take the emotion out of that, if you look at sort of minute 30 to 70 of that game, uh, the Springboks actually won all the small battles. And, and look quite good. So there was a lot to take out of it when you when you remove the result. And then last week's game against Argentina was a very funny one. Um, I think uh, the the big incident at the beginning of the game where scrum half Grant Williams was knocked out, mm. and uh, you know that just sort of seemed to I don't know just sucked all sort of momentum from the game. It had only just started, and there was a seven eight minute delay while they dealt with the injury and. I don't think the Springboks ever really just got into the game. And to be fair, Argentina were very good as well. So um, they got away with the win. But it's it's certainly shown that uh, the Springboks are going to have to be a little bit more consistent. I think that's been the big takeaway. They've been very inconsistent in these first three games. They've been great in patches and really poor in other patches. That incident that you mentioned, Craig, um, so, uh, as you say, Grant Williams knocked our cold, the Argentinian fullback Juan Cruz Maia, uh, blocking down his kick just 10 seconds into the match, collides with uh, Williams's head, he's forced off with concussion, this is an Irish referee as well, Andrew Brace, in this match, decided it was a rugby incident, Maia uh, wasn't sanctioned at the time, but then cited after the match. Um, there's been a lot of question marks over this incident and, and whether or not the, the officials got it right 
on the pitch. What's your take on it? Yeah, I wrote a whole column on it. It's very difficult because Brace, in the in the framework he was working in, the, I mean, the first question is, is there contact to the head? And that's, yes, that's quite obvious. Uh, there was contact to the head. Then the second question is, was it foul play? And he decided it wasn't. And the minute he, he decides that, the next step of the equation is play on. So if the referee decided on the field it's not foul play, then play on. Um, he then had another look at it after the, the whistle blew to stop play because Williams needed attention. And he came to the same conclusion. He said the player could do nothing about it. He was committed. He was in the air. Now, my initial thought was I was with the referee on this. I thought, well, you're asking players to attempt charge downs. You're asking players to commit. He came through. He jumped to try and charge down a kick and and collided with uh, Williams, which seemed unfortunate. But watching it again, he turns in the air. He he takes off from about five meters before you know ahead of Williams. You've got to say there's an element of recklessness about it. Mm. Um, and for the referee to quickly make that decision uh, that it was just a, a rugby incident was was perhaps where they they uh, they might have taken a little bit more time to look at it a bit more closely. But then, <laughs> another but. But then we we've had this with fans before. I sometimes feel that referees and TMOs can convince themselves as a sniper on the grassy knoll by looking at things over and over and over again in, in, in super slow motion. Um, I think it was foul play in the sense that it was clumsy and reckless and perhaps it deserved a yellow card at the end of it. But I understand why Andrew Brace did what he did uh, within the framework of the game. He decided it wasn't foul play and the next part of that equation is then we play on. Um, so... Uh, it, it 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 was it's highly controversial. I think they've got to simplify this whole thing for referees. I think if if they're going to be serious about head injuries, the starting point has got to be if there's contact to the head, it's foul play, whether it was intentional or not. I think that's got to be the the um, the starting point from here on in, because now you're asking the referee to interpret foul play as well. And it, it, was it foul play? Did the guy? If you hit him in the head, it's foul play, and then we can decide about mitigating circumstances. Is it a yellow card? Is it a red card? Is it just a penalty? So I think we've got to start with foul play for head contact, whether it's intentional or unintentional, and that might simplify the matter. Yeah, I think the people say these things shouldn't be a grey area, but the reality is that sometimes they are grey areas. You know, these decisions they're they're tough to to come to. So you can understand both sides of of the argument in some in some ways. Um, one man named in the Springbok team starting lineup for this game on Saturday Craig is Jean Klein a, a man who we know very well over these parts of the Munster second row of course second appearance he's going to make in Buenos Aires um, so he only made his South African debut of course last month at that 43-12 win over Australia that you mentioned um, having previously played five times for Ireland part of the World Cup squad four years ago uh, is he in with a, a real chance of, of being involved for South Africa or is he is he more of a squad player what's the What's the feeling on John Klein down there? Look, he played very well. His debut, he, he put in a very good shift. It was a, it was quite an eye-catching performance, I thought. Um, I think he's got a big opportunity tomorrow. If he has a big game uh, on Saturday, rather, or early hours of Sunday morning, our time, he's, uh, he's certainly going to uh, make a case for himself. I, I, I think it's Marvin Ori and he are, are slightly different. They, they're partnering tomorrow. Um but the Springboks probably could do with a number four, another number four lock in the Ebenezer Beth Mole uh, in the squad, uh, and and Klein fits the bill. So I think 
another big performance, and he'll he'll certainly be uh, in consideration. But he is a late comer to the squad. The Springboks have pretty much used they used forty three players this year so far. They've had forty three players in the squad, um, and you know he hasn't been part of the squads for previous years. It's pretty much the same group they've they've taken through two or three years. So it would be a little surprise if he does make the final cut. But uh, from a performance level, there's no reason why he shouldn't. And um, Craig, I'm just wondering about this book, um, the Razzy Erasmus Stories of Life and Rugby, which is going to be, it's coming out, what, 10 days before the tournament starts. It does appear that some little sort of uh, tidbits are coming out of it already, um, which seem to be sort of quite revealing in some ways, you know, the previous resignation threat in 2021. I'm sort of just curious, generally, what's the response been to like the timing of this release and do people feel in any way this could be possibly unsettling or is it just sort of typical of the character and people are sort of shrugging it off yeah look i i haven't really dipped into the book much i, I got a copy yesterday so i've just had a, a, a brief glimpse at some of the things I, there hasn't been too much talk about it dan to be quite honest it's been um it's mostly been about the Springboks and their performance. The book has certainly not seen too much written about it. Or there, there, there were some extracts, as you point out there, about almost resigning. But I think he mentioned that as well um, in the documentary that came out in South Africa about a year ago, Rossi Rasmus story, and that was mentioned in that documentary. So what I've seen is not much, and maybe it's because I'm closer to the game, it doesn't feel like there's a lot new what I've heard. Uh, mm. The timing is curious. I, I, I always think that, you should publish a book after the World Cup campaign rather than before. <laughs> yeah, and certainly just from a purely sales point of view, if you can get it out in time for Christmas, if you win the World Cup, it's you know, you're gonna make great sales. And if you don't win the World Cup, people wanna know why you why you messed up. Uh so I, I think the the timing is a bit odd though, to to release a book in August. Um, you know, either you go for Christmas or some sort of holiday season or Easter or something, it, it does seem a bit odd that it's come out at this point, but uh, the publishers might need to answer that question. I suppose get the juicy stories out in advance of the World Cup, sell some books, and then Possibly, do the up- updated yeah. version after the World Cup, regardless of result, maybe. Um, what's the feeling, Craig, around Ireland in South Africa? Like At, at the moment, of course, the, coming off the back of the Grand Slam, there are high enough hopes in Ireland, you'd imagine, although, albeit there is the, the impending doom that is the Rugby World Cup quarterfinal that has been, for <laughs> us, uh, the stumbling block in, in recent tournaments. But how do South Africans feel about that Irish team at the moment? Oh, look, I mean, Ireland, we know, that beat South Africa last year in Dublin. I mean, there's no no one in South Africa is under any illusions how good Ireland are. Um, and I, I think from a Springbok point of view, though, uh, we all, uh, me included, initially, oh, September the 23, circle that day, that's the, that's the big game in the group. But as we saw in 2019, yeah, the Springboks lost to the All Blacks and still cruised through the group. The Springboks have, have said it. They're not too worried about the Ireland game just yet. Their only focus is Scotland on September the 10th. because, And that makes sense because that's the other real banana peel game in the group. If they beat Scotland, then the Irish game almost doesn't matter because you're likely to advance whether you win or lose that game anyway. Mm. Uh, and then it's just your, your quarterfinal opponent. So the Springboks are really focused on the Scotland game and, and, and rightly so because you can't afford to slip up against Scotland because then the Ireland game becomes a knockout match. Uh, and, and Ireland similarly in the same boat. I mean, they, they only play the Scotland after they play the Springboks. So uh, they've got to somehow get through their first two games uh, and and the Springbok game 
And if they lose to the Springboks, suddenly the Scotland game becomes a knockout match for Ireland, possibly. I mean, Tonga could be a dangerous floater in that group. Um, so while the Ireland game is great in, in terms of matching two of the world's best teams currently, the world champions against the world number one side, and there's a lot to, to like about that, that matchup, um, I think the reality is Scotland are the real um, team in the group that could spoil the party for one of the two big teams. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, there, there have been a couple of big decisions for for Neil Albert and Rasmus Rasmus to make over the last number of weeks. Not not least the captaincy, which I know is a big deal in any in any country, but not least in in um, South Africa. Um, so the hooker Bongi Mbanambi has been named as captain. Is this a surprise? Uh, of course, Sia Khaleesi and Andre Pollard currently sidelined, um, and Dwayne Vermeulen in South Africa. So this captaincy, I guess, was 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 a bit of a deal. Kanye Am, I suppose, was the other name on the on the shortlist. Yeah, I was a little surprised he, he got it over Lucanio Am because out of that group that went, they were probably the two obvious candidates for, mm. the, for the job. Uh, Bangui and Banambi is part of the leadership group and has been for the last four years. Um, they have these little uh, internal leadership groups and he's one of the key uh, leaders in the group. And when they're on the field, they, they play different roles. Uh, you know, the captain will obviously do what the captain does. But within that, uh, Mbanambi is usually what they like to term good cop. So he will speak to the referee about the the, the um, picture the Springboks are presenting at scrum time, for instance. That's in Bonambi's role, even when he's not captain. So he has that kind of communication with the referee. So it's just a step up from that, um, you know, that he's, he's going to take on the role. And look, he's a fierce competitor. He's a guy who sort of plays with his heart and his sleeve and he leads by example. So you know, he fits the bill quite well as a, as, as a, as a leader that the other men would want to follow. Um, and I think it's quite a nice recognition for a guy who's played more than sixty tests as well, mm. uh, and has been, as I said, in the in this leadership role to to get some sort of formal recognition for it as well. Dwayne Vermeulen is the other name I mentioned, uh, and it's kind of similar lines to to Johnny Sexton. He he had his final home game, Vermeulen, uh, for South Africa recently. That test at Ellis Park against Argentina, his final match on on South African soil. I know Shalk Berger has been out this week paying tribute to him. Um, I'm sure it's an emotional one. The talk in South Africa, certainly that I'm reading, is that he's expected to go into coaching. Craig, is that the the path? I guess we're expecting to see him take. Yeah, I would imagine that that would be the would be the way he goes. Dwayne's quite a, a student of the game. He really likes the technical and tactical side of the game as well. So yeah, I can't see um, that that he wouldn't go into that role. But I think he wants to play a little bit more rugby. Um, yeah, at the start of the international season, his place in the World Cup squad, I don't think, was guaranteed. Jasper Visa had clearly become the, the first choice number eight. And it, it just depends how they how they look at the makeup of the loose forward group. But uh, it appears now after two very strong test matches, he's he's back in the mix. And I think he will go to the World Cup. And that will be swan song. Um, but I think he might still play some provincial rugby next year. But I think that it, it, as far as test rugby goes, the World Cup will be it. And then... Uh, he's already does handle a lot of sessions at provincial level, defensive work and line-out sessions. He, he sort of does a lot of that work anyway. So uh, I think it'll just be a natural extension for him. Yeah, it's a, it's a big name to hang off the boots. And it's certainly, you mentioned leadership earlier. Um, like he, he adds a lot more than just a just playing level as well. And that's probably why we're going to miss Johnny Sexton in some in some regards in this country is that when there's a, a gap from the dressing room, and maybe there's not, maybe he joins the Springboks coaching setup. I know he's been rumored to to maybe join one of the other the, the, uh, provincial teams over there as well. But I guess that gap, that vacuum in, in the dressing room, is 
is the, is the important thing when someone like this leaves. Yeah, I think, you know, as you all know, you can't, you can't buy experience. You can't just produce it. It has to be gathered and gained over uh, years and decades even. So Sexton, Vermeulen, uh, Pollard, you take these guys out of a dressing room, uh, it does leave a void. Um, and you just can't fill it. It just has to be a, uh, an organic thing. It will, it will be filled in time as more players develop their, those, those, um, experience, that experience. But uh, it's a big blow. And I guess what you're trying to do is make sure there's a lot of other experienced players in the dressing room. So when one, one of the big names drops out and goes off, there's, there's quite a lot of people to take up the, you know, the, the flack, as it were. I'm not asking you to do the uh, the scouting for us, uh, Craig, but if you were setting up to play this South African team and, and you were trying to pinpoint a weakness or two, where at the moment would you say those are? I think it's two areas, and the All Blacks exposed it. South Africa, weirdly, the kicking game has gone to pieces in recent weeks. They, they then, I remember, uh, you guys will know, a few years ago, everyone was criticising the Springboks for the box kick and the kick chase, but they were they were very good at it. But they seem to be highly inaccurate at the moment when they are kicking the kicks are too deep they're not putting enough pressure with the kick chase so that that aspect of the game has fallen off but i think the real weakness is the all blacks showed it on defense under the high ball the springboks have been very shaky the all blacks um kicking game was superb uh in in auckland a few weeks ago and almost every kick they put up was contestable and they won a lot of them, the All Blacks, they regained position. So the Springboks are a bit shaky there. And then the defence out wide, it's not that Colby or Mapimpi or Orenser can't tackle. It's the Springbok defensive system of pushing in from the, from the outside in uh, is highly effective when they're all connected and they're doing it with pace. But sometimes if the attacking side is brave enough, they can beat the rush on the outside and they Springboks have been exposed wide a few times, which means the, the scramble defense has to get across. Uh, Australia scored like that in the, the test in Pretoria. So th- those are probably two aspects. The defense, it's re- largely down to defense and it's their, their wide defense and their, their defense under the high ball. Um, Craig, I'm going to throw you a bit of a tangent here because I see you were, you were tweeting about the South African women and their exploits in the, the World Cup. I'm sort of more of a football uh, a football person myself. I'm actually just curious how that's been received because it's, um, it's a, it seems like a great sporting story um, from afar, but I don't know how that's sort of gone down in South Africa. Or is, there much, is there much hype oh, around that? Yeah, I, look, I think women's football, I don't know what the situation is in Ireland, but it's, 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 it's gaining traction, but slowly. It's way behind men's football, unfortunately. But Banyana Banyana, the women's team have, you know, they won the, the Women's African uh, Cup last year, uh, which was a first. And that really put them on the map, and they, uh, that, that received a lot of uh, airtime, a lot of support. And then making the World Cup this year, and of course, yesterday's result, the the country went went mad. It was it was great to see that, that South Africa was really getting behind the women, and it's more so because the South African Football Association is a, a fairly poorly run organisation, yeah. and um, there was a big pay dispute before the women's team left for the World Cup. FIFA, of course, guaranteed uh, all players in the in the group phase. I think thirty thousand dollars each, which will be paid directly to the players. Uh, South Africa's women's footballers who are, are largely amateur or semi-professional, there's a couple of professionals in the side, wanted more from uh, SAFA, the South African Football Association, and 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 SAFA just refused or couldn't 
said they couldn't afford to pay them properly. Uh, and that led to a, a strike. They, they boycotted playing a warm-up game against Botswana. Um, and eventually, uh, Patrice Motsepi, one of the richest men in Africa, he stepped in through his foundation to find the extra funding for the women's team uh, to guarantee bonuses and, and so on. And just as well he did because, uh, you know, by making the knockout stages now, there will be extra extra pay. So I see on social media today, Safa are taking a pounding from people uh, saying, well, you know, you guys should stump up the money and, and, and pay these players what they're worth. And let's be honest, they've gone further in the World Cup than the men's side ever did. They qualified for a World Cup, which the men's side has not done uh, since 2002, I think it was, 2010, we qualified as hosts. So, um, yeah, the women's side is, is, is really performing well above what it should be performing at. And that's testament to their own skill and the coaching and, and their own commitment. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to follow that journey. First time, as you say, into the, the knockout stages, it's the Netherlands. So nice, handy fixture for South Africa up next uh, this Sunday in Sydney. We'll keep an eye on their story. Definitely one of the fairy tale stories of this Women's World Cup. Craig, thanks so for hopping on this morning. Great stuff. Nice to see you, Shane. Nice to see you, Dan. OTB AM. The Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball.